Episode 35. Would you approve of how Jesus would run his kingdom? Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Well, the hail season is uh, coming upon us here. We've started to have a little bit of hail here in Montana, and uh, I hope my work will be picking up soon. So here I am trying to uh, squeeze in a few episodes here and there before I have to get busy about uh, making money uh, all summer. And uh, we're getting ready for Kay's uh, a piano recital tomorrow. She's got a few students who are going to play and this and that. So it promises to be a very busy summer. And I'm excited, though, to keep the podcast going best I can. And uh, perhaps I'll have opportunity to do that. I'm also planning for a very big uh, show or two in the fall uh, with our school here and and our choral groups and skits and so forth. So uh, who knows? Perhaps I uh, will work myself to death uh, by overdoing it. But it does seem so promising to work hard at things. So uh, this is me managing my schedule or not. Uh, best I can, I think. So perhaps I'll learn and grow up someday, or perhaps uh, I'll think, no, this has all been worth it every minute. So we'll see. However, I have been uh, continuing to think through things and uh, thinking about all these topics that we talk about. I do listen frequently to these episodes as well as to other podcasts, and I'm constantly thinking about um, how we should be sizing up the Bible and what should be our view of things. And this particular topic, uh, would you approve of how Jesus would run his kingdom, is one I think is timely to our overall discussion. Again, we're still in the middle of a baptism series, and so that has, uh, I have not forgotten about that. Uh, However, this was ready to go, and that topic was not. So this one got to the forefront. Uh, So my questions are these. What kind of people are we? How docile are we under God and Jesus? How easy are we to work with, or to lead, or to teach? How flexible and pliable are we? Are we hard-headed and stubborn, or are we submissive and teachable? And how much do we pay attention? And how apt are we to pick up on what is truly important? There's much disagreement among Christians over what time it is in this world. We've been talking recently about the already but not yet business, this uh, manner of speaking that is sometimes used in Scripture about some things. And one of the subjects most likely to come up when you raise the question of Abney, which is already but not yet, 
when you raise the question of the Abney language in the Bible, is the uh, the topic of God's and Jesus's kingdom? Is it established already? If so, how? Or has it not yet happened? And if so, is it not yet anywhere happening? <laughs> or is it just not here that it's happening? And then, of course, there's the question of whether it's really going to be established on the face of the planet Earth in some manner of a restored Eden. And if that's what you think the story's telling you, then you're certainly not going to think that it has happened yet. Where if you're like me and you think that um, God's kingdom proper, uh, where eternal life is enjoyed by the faithful uh, dead, or, you know, resurrected humans, then you're, um, you realize you're not going to be able to look around you here on earth and know what time it is in heaven. The faithful could already be up there or not, but you can be pretty sure they're not already assembled down here in some sort of earthly holy city, some sort of an earthly uh, heavenly Jerusalem, which, of course, I say that on purpose <laughs> because I tend to believe where it says heavenly Jerusalem, it's talking about one that uh, starts in heaven and belongs in heaven and stays in heaven uh, instead of that comes down to earth uh, and stays here after all of that. But I totally understand there's uh, disagreement about those things, and uh, I think we ought to be thinking through it rather than just picking a camp and uh, sticking to our guns. Anyway, there's much to be examined when it comes to all these things and why we believe what we believe about it all. But I want to talk about what our attitudes are like in the big picture. Clearly, God is doing whatever God is doing, whether we see it or not, and whether it makes great sense to us or not. But what's our attitude about it all? And would we approve of it? Would we let God be God? Or do we assume some latitude ourselves to approve or to disprove of what he's doing? As if that were primarily our business and not his. Would it be okay with us if we were not front and center in his kingdom? That is, if during our lives uh, it wasn't all about us or it didn't seem to be all about us, would that be okay? Would it be okay with us if he did not consult us about it? Well, Jack, how do you think I should run everything during your lifetime? Um, would it be okay with us if we were alive during one era of history, but not during another? Would we pout over that? Would we be in denial over that? Would we try to imagine ourselves into a time and circumstance that is now past or that is now future? So the question, well, what kind of people are we? What, what kind of character traits do we have concerning this sort of thing? You know, we are created and not uh, the creator ourselves. Are we okay with that? And we, we dealt with that in early episodes, what it means to be created. I'm reminded of the story of Ronald Reagan's latter years uh, and his struggle with Alzheimer's disease. I, I know that um, he's a controversial figure, as is pretty much every famous human on the planet. And certainly as a, um, a political figure, he's controversial. I do think uh, that there were some good things about Reagan. I also think that he did violate the Constitution he swore to uphold. So I hold that against his record. But anyway, I want to talk about what I think is a good thing and what seems to be a reliable story. And I want to just quote a bit, uh, just one paragraph from a, 
a Newsweek story, and I've put a um, a link to the show notes or a link to this story in the show notes. But the uh, author of the story is writing uh, about Reagan's latter years, and of course, he's uh, uh, Nancy is still the main decision maker and caretaker in the House, and the um, Secret Service is still involved. And so the writer says this, some of his old joys had to go. Reagan could no longer ride his favorite horse. Nancy asked Reagan's Secret Service man, John Barletta, to deliver the news. And so uh, Barletta is speaking here. I said, I don't think we should ride anymore, Barletta recalled. By this time, there's tears coming down his cheeks. And I believe he's talking about Reagan there. And, and all he said in his time of need was, it's okay, John. I know he was trying to make me feel better. Now, that's all what John Barletta said. So uh, Reagan's being told he can't do one of his favorite things anymore. And uh, yet... Uh, his concern was not to push back against that, but it was also uh, very cool that he was, he knew that what the man was telling him was difficult for, to tell somebody. And so he sort of, uh, you know, the guy said, I knew he was trying to make me feel better about it. So uh, it's that kind of being docile that I, that came to mind here about, are we okay with what time it is in the world, with how God is running the world right now, with what he's doing or not doing, are we okay with that or are we going to strain against that? Well, it's very easy not to have Reagan's attitude when it comes to knowing and understanding and heeding what time it is today. For example, many Gentile believers today do indeed try to live as Jews to some extent. They import a great deal of Jewish tradition and lore and culture into their Christian fellowships. Is this commanded by God? No. But to them, it's important. And surely, some of them go too far with this. And you can tell when things become, uh, you can tell they go too far when it becomes a test of fellowship. That is, when they won't uh, welcome those who don't think it's important to import so much of the Jewish historical culture and practice. Suppose someone decided that we were still in the Garden of Eden, and so they tried to view the whole world as some manner of Edenic existence, and they walked around naked and ate uh, only fruit from trees and sought out uh, God in the cool of the day, you know, as it says there, that God was walking in the cool of the day. Well, would they find God walking in the garden they planted for themselves in their backyard? No but they'd likely find a way to pretend they did. They'd likely hand wave away the differences between their own situation and the one they wish it were so that they would not have to see God walking in their garden nor to actually hear his voice. Likely they'd just imagine having conversations with him and they'd imagine the answers and they'd tell themselves that those answers are really God talking to them. Now, some people don't get that way of thinking. They're more firmly anchored in reality. But you've got to understand that for many others, this is a very attractive way of thinking. The suspension of reality as they pretend to be about something more lofty or more important and worthy and reliable than reality. 
people like that wouldn't even listen to the very Bible from which they get their Eden information. Rather, they'd pick and choose, lauding the details about Eden right up to the spot where God drives man out of the garden and has angelic guards seeing to it that they can't get back in. People like that would not allow those biblical facts to inform their overall view of Eden. No, they'd just keep on practicing as they wish, even though God himself shut down Eden so very long ago, and even though there is no place in Scripture that says it's open for business again. And now, speaking of Eden, when it really did happen, when it really was open, how did Adam and Eve do? with the way God wanted to run things there. Did they think his will in the matter was important? And did they think it was as important as it really was? Or did they assume the latitude to do things more to their own liking from time to time? Well, you know the story. Adam and Eve opted to work outside the rules, and look what happened there. They ended up handing over control of the earth that had been put as their domain. They were to a rule over the earth. Well, they ended up handing this over to another ruler, who, if you know the story, was Satan. And now the story doesn't say, and thus they handed over control of earth to Satan. So you have to read between the lines to get that, and many do try to read between those lines, and they uh, are uncertain of the time at which Satan became the ruler of this earth, and yet Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to him in exactly those terms. And there are, there's other similar language here and there in Scripture about it. So he definitely got that role, and, and how did he get that role, and when? Well, people will disagree about that. You should know there is a, uh, a myth uh, called the chirograph of Adam, the idea that somehow Adam and, Eve and Satan end up in some contractual agreement as to who's going to be the leader or the ruler of the earth and so forth. And uh, that's a very fascinating thing. I've been studying that myself. Uh, not sure what to believe about that. But there may be a hint of that in the passage in Colossians about uh, he canceled the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, whatever that language is, uh, nailing it to the cross, and some people will just quickly glance at that and say, oh, that was obviously the law of Moses. Um, but there's some problems with that, uh, not the least of which is that Jesus says um, they didn't come to cancel the law of Moses. Uh, at least it didn't seem to be imminent. And yet here he is imminently after saying that, uh, supposedly nailing it to the cross. That causes one to wonder, and rightly so, so the idea that, oh, there's some sort of deal between Adam and uh, Satan. Well, why aren't we told about that in the Bible? Well, that's a good question. Um, of course, if it's mentioned in that one Colossians passage, well, there's something we're told about it in the Bible, but there's no details. So again, it's very tricky, and you may think it's silly to bring that up, to wonder about it, but I do wonder about it for several reasons, uh, and I won't go into that now. Uh, let's suppose a different case. Suppose somebody were hung up on Noah's flood and they decided that this must be the time they're living in now. So how would that play out? Uh, let's assume it's uh, the flood's coming, right? It's 
because, you know, it's kind of difficult to pretend you're in a flooded world when you're not. So they can pretend, of course, that, it, well, it's coming. It's, it's imminent. It's going to happen soon. So we can just imagine uh, whatever, what this might be like for such a person because it would sound silly to us. But suppose um, this person were building his own boat in his backyard. And suppose he were keeping as many animals as he could manage in some sort of a zoo out back. And suppose he insisted on having eight members in his family. Suppose you were trying to talk some sense into this guy. Uh, suppose you told him that the Bible, from where he gets the information he likes about Noah and the flood, also gives further information regarding not only uh, how the flood is over now, but that God has sworn not to do it again. How would our imaginary Noah fan respond? Would he be informed by the further information? Or would he ignore it? Would it seem right to him that things had since moved on from Noah's days? Uh, that God had since moved the timeline forward and that we weren't in the flood period anymore? Well, at the end of the flood story in the Bible, Noah does indeed get off the ark and he moves on, realizing that the time of the flood was over and that it was now time to get on with repopulating the earth. So Noah got over it, uh, but there might be somebody who took a notion to be some modern-day Noah and to be acting in the role of Noah. Well, would they, <laughs> would they get over it once you showed them in the Bible that, no, that's not what time it is anymore? Uh, let's suppose you were Noah. Would you be bummed out that you didn't get to be Adam and Eve and to see the garden and to live in it for however long they were in it? By the way, I have researched this question in the ancient Near East uh, documents, the extra biblical documents. I do not find any mention in the Bible how long it was. And I, it seems I have found a couple of different mentions in uh, these other writings that it may have been uh, just hours which seems unlikely in some ways, or that it might have been as much as seven years that they were there. So that's a huge question mark still in my book. I would love to uh, to find more information about that and see whether I could settle the matter uh, out of curiosity of nothing more. Anyway, uh, here's the thing we need to remember about what time it is. Uh, if I read the Bible right, all the faithful are going to end up in the same place at the unending end of the story. You know, where you get to have eternal life. That's the unending part of it. Uh, everybody's lived out their brief years here on earth, but at the end of the story, they get to spend eternity with God. So one great question is this, what's their focus while they're here? Are they focused more on the here and now than they are on the there and then? more on the temporary than on the eternal. Might somebody like Noah have been grumpy about what time it was in his life? Might he have protested, I wish I had a garden full of rich food around me 24-7. Or how might Adam and Eve have felt about Noah's time, had they been able to see into the future? When their son Cain killed their son Abel, Abel God banished Cain and protected him against attack by anybody else. Well, how would Adam and Eve have felt about that? Would they have preferred to live in the time of Noah when somebody like Cain would have died in the flood 
rather than being left alive to wander the earth and to build his empire. This is all imaginary business, of course. It's an intellectual exercise for us. But mulling these things over might be useful to us as we ponder the question of what kind of people we are. It helps us to decouple from ourselves and to think about the positions that others were in, or are in, in order to get a better handle on our own attitudes and dispositions and beliefs and biases. So this question about, well, how is God running the world at any given time? Uh, do you realize that that has changed repeatedly since the beginning of the story we have in the Bible? Here are 12 things that I have thought of that I think you would agree with me. These situations have come to an end. And number one is Eden, you know, the garden, uh, Eden comma garden of, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, uh, that garden is no longer findable. Nobody knows where it is. We're also not told what happened to it. When was it removed from the planet? Or is it some sort of secret location that can only be discovered uh, through some sort of magic or revelation like the city of Brigadoon in the, um, in the Broadway show of the same name? Uh, number two, the flood. Uh, Noah's flood has since passed, whether you think it was local or regional or global. Uh, and there's disagreement about all that. Uh, I think, by the way, that the text does not require it to be uh, a global event that goes all around planet Earth. Uh, and I've studied this out. I don't think I could make that argument responsibly from the texts. However... Just about everywhere I go, I see some placard that this place used to be an inland sea. And I do see uh, geographical evidence of major flooding uh, everywhere I go. So uh, I'm not saying that the flood was only local or regional. Uh, I think that they were only concerned with whether it covered that Mediterranean region that the Bible seems to be concerned with. <clears throat> so there's uh, something to think about. Uh, number three, the Nephilim. That is the ones from Genesis 6, these, these uh, giants who uh, came about by the uh, marriage of angel types to human women. And uh, a lot of people don't like that story in Genesis 6. They think it's about uh, the sons, not the sons of God, the angels, but the sons of Israel, uh, just the faithful to God. But that really doesn't hold water in my book. Also, it doesn't answer to why uh, 1 Enoch, chapter 6, tells the same story in much more explicit terms. So um, so there's that. But that time has passed. Uh, the Nephilim are not here. There are no giants here uh, of what they were before. And just so you know, here's a bonus. Uh, Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian who wrote for the Romans after being captured in... Um, the battle uh, between the Jews and the Romans in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, he wrote in 75 AD about the Nephilim, and he said, the bones of these are still shown to this day, and their form is such as could not be confused with that of human form. So there's something to ponder. This is not just a tall person. 
so that's it. Okay, so that's not still happening today. I think most would agree. Number four, the law of Moses. Now, some will disagree with me on this, but I would point out, as I have before, okay, you've got no temple, you've got no priesthood, you've got no genealogy. The articles of the temple are missing. Uh, there is no altar there and the lava and all these things. They're gone. Um, the animal sacrifices have stopped. And so there are no more prophets who are um, speaking about the law of Moses and the need to uphold it and on and on it goes. So I think that that is defunct and out of business. It is obsolete. And you may disagree with me. I'd love to hear your evidence for that. Uh, number five, the times of the judges are over. You know, Moses appointed judges in the desert. Uh, and then if I don't mention this again, I'm going to talk about the apostles in a minute. I believe that they also served as judges over Israel. But that time is over. Uh, number six, the time of the tabernacle. Uh, before the temple, there was a tent-type structure that they could pack up and take with them as they moved. And it was quite an impressive thing for a tent. Uh, and yet that is over. That's not being practiced anymore today. Uh, number seven, the first temple, the one Solomon built. Number eight, the second temple uh, and the rebuilding of it by Herod the Great uh, in the New Testament times. Those are both gone. All those buildings, they are not there anymore. And some will tell you, oh, the Western Wall is still there. Well, that's not part of the temple itself. That's just part of the greater complex that Herod built in his time to make it a greater um, landmark and historical place and a, a tourist attraction and a trade center also. So um, number nine, the earthly ministry of Jesus. Uh, he, you probably <laughs> know this. He is no longer walking around the Judean countryside, no longer teaching in the streets in Jerusalem. Uh, that is over. Uh, number 10, the time of the apostles. They are no longer there. And again, some churches will say they do have apostles. Uh, but I don't find that even remotely convincing uh, for several reasons. I'm sure we've discussed it before. But number one, did Jesus really appoint them? Number two, can they do the signs of an apostle that the originals could do? And my answer to that is no and no. Uh, number 11, the various gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, such as prophecy, miracles, signs and wonders, things like that. I think those are over. And again, some would disagree with me on that. And yet I can point to things in the Bible that you can't show happening today. So, um, so it's, a, it's an evidentiary matter in my view. And then number 12, the last one that came to my mind was the writing of Scripture. That uh, most people think this is over. I certainly do. The latest document we have in the Bible, people will argue about dates and all that. But uh, rarely does anybody think that anything in the Bible is uh, older than, say, or that is younger than, you know, sometime in the in the second century A.D. Uh, others will date all of it uh, earlier in the first century, uh, with the latest of it being around 70 A.D. So there's some difference there. But nobody thinks, as far as I know, that the Bible is still being written today. Indeed, my whole life, it's been just these 66 books in the Protestant Bible, and there's nothing else that's been added to it, and I'm 56 years old. So 
If it's being written today, how do you make that case? So anyway, had you lived in one of these periods, would you have been okay that you didn't live in another one of these periods? Or suppose that you were one of the Israelite slaves in Egypt. Let's say you're 100 years before the arrival of Moses. Think about it. You're a slave in a culture that cares little for you. You have a religion that's pretty fuzzy, based mostly on stories you heard from the past about Abraham and Adam and Eve and Enoch and such. But God's not helping you build a boat to be saved from the cruel world around you. He's not walking with you in the cool of the day in a paradise He is not visiting you with angels, as he did with Abraham. And you're going to have died of old age before Moses, whom you've never heard of, rises up to save your people from Egypt. Would you be okay with that? Would you think that something was wrong? Would you wonder whether there really is a God? Would you wonder whether all those old stories had been made up? Would you start declaring some things about what time it is, things that are actually above your head and beyond your grasp, things that exceed your actual knowledge of what's going on? Would you say things like, we're never going to get out of here? Or, the Egyptians are never going to let us go. Would you say things like, God doesn't care about us? Or, God has no idea what's happening to us? Well, many would. But you know what's funny about that? A guy in that situation is one accident away from finding out a lot about what's going on. Say this guy slips and falls into a quarry and is killed. According to what we can put together from the Bible and other ancient Near Eastern writings, it seems they believe that when they would die, angels would come get the human spirit and take it to God for a meeting. And then that spirit would have seven days to wander about the earth as disembodied spirit, uh, where they could observe everything. And during that seven days, they'd be either extremely happy or extremely sad over what God had told them in that meeting about where they're going. And after the seven days, they'd be gathered by angels into the underworld, that is Sheol or Hades, uh, where they'd be assigned a place uh, where 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 they're either among the righteous or the wicked. And, you know, we looked at uh, 1 Enoch 22, where there are actually four such places and not just two. Uh, When you read Jesus's uh, talk of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus, (laughs) I can't believe I said Lazarus. I know I can't even say it wrong. Um, Anyway, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, you might get the impression, oh, there are only two places for the dead. Although it doesn't say that, it just mentions the two of them in that story about two different people. Uh, However, uh, it appears from one Enoch that there were four places, and that requires us to uh, broaden the story. So anyway, uh, let's say you're that uh, Joe Hebrew 100 years before Moses, and you uh, slip and fall in the quarry and you die you'd not only get to immediately settle the question of whether angels exist or not, even though you hadn't been seeing any around you in Egypt, uh, because there would be angels escorting you uh, to God, but you'd also find yourself face-to-face with God. So you could check that off the list too. Okay, God exists, check. Uh, And then you could tour the earth for a week as a disembodied spirit, examining whatever you'd like. 
And then you'd get to see the underworld too. So our Hebrew friend who dies in this accident a few years before Moses arrives, he goes on from speculating uh, about what time it is to knowing a great deal about what really goes on. And his further education begins immediately upon his death. Does this change his view of things? Well, you bet it does. And he realizes that he was created onto a timeline where not everything that happens is what happened before and where what comes next may be different in some regard and where what's happening right now may not be how it is in the future. And he learns to see things in this new way. And if he's wise, he adjusts his view of things to be less self-centric and more timeline-centric. He realizes that God is in charge of how it all flows. And he realizes, if he's wise, some of the errors he made during his lifetime. And he realizes what all he might have done differently uh, had he made, had a different attitude about it all. Even if God is a huge fan of the guy and tells him he'll be in that special section of Sheol called Abraham's bosom, uh, he's still going to start realizing more and more how many errors he made while living in the flesh and blood. And he'll realize what's regrettable and how he could have done better. And he'll realize that in the big scheme of things, he's not going to miss out on much because he's going to see Jesus when the time comes and God's still working to bring it all about in time and that he's in good hands. He'll come to see that no matter what time one is born into, and no matter when he dies, it all leads to the same eternal world after, where some are refused entry and are cast into the lake of fire and where the righteous live forever in glory. And he'll see that everybody has their struggles while they're alive and that God is looking at the heart to see whether they loved him and whether they were righteous and whether they would endure and overcome or not. And he'll see that God judges everybody impartially and fairly, and the eternity ahead makes the span of his earthly life seem inconsequential, no matter how hard or easy it might have been. And so he'll start to understand big picture passages like Micah 6, 8. And this is the one that so often comes to mind. I have not duly committed it to memory, including the reference. And I can't remember where I said it was uh, when I mentioned it in the last episode, but I know it wasn't Micah 6, 8. So, uh, there's me making errors. So what it says is, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And yeah, that's a big picture passage, it seems. He's not talking to a specific man about his specific life in some specific situation. This seems to be generalized talk here. And I think it's so useful to us to stop and examine this, what things are in here, and that they're required. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So those three things seem to be of primary importance. So our guy uh, who's living before Moses, uh, even if whenever he dies, not everything about the end times has been prophesied, he'll certainly see that God most definitely has it all under control. 
you know, a guy who dies uh, after, oh, Isaiah is written, well, more has been revealed into the general knowledge base of people about what the afterlife would be like and the end times and all that. But still, God's in control of both once they're in Sheol, right? So uh, God definitely was in charge of it and had it all under control. And I submit that we're all in the same boat, no matter what we think about what time it is. Uh, we're just one deadly accident away from knowing a whole lot more about what time it is than we do right now. And is that okay with us? Are we going to be sour that he hasn't told us everything about what time it is and what's going to happen next and what already happened? Imagine a person telling God, well, hey, I appreciate your invitation to come take my heavenly reward of eternal life with you, but really, I'm not so sure I want to come. I'm still sore over the fact that you had me born under the law of Moses rather than in the first century during Jesus' visit. Or imagine someone saying, I'm sore that you had me born after the apostles and all their miracles. I really wanted to see all that, so I'm not going to come with you now. Well, these are ridiculous, of course, and yet it's worth thinking about, right? Isn't it like the tail wagging the dog? This is hardly that blessed are the meek attitude we discussed at length in episode twenty, uh, episode 17, rather, which was called uh, Blessed Are the Meek in Matthew 5. We recently discussed the time when Jesus predicted his death, and Peter says, no, this will never happen to you. Uh, here it is, Matthew 16, uh, 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he returned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And so here we see in this situation, we've talked about this one before, in the, in the episode about listening, and how Peter at this time was not listening. It's like, Jesus should know what's going to happen here. So why are you saying, oh, no, no, that can't be. But uh, this was not um, unique to Peter. Many people who had not learned to listen and to yield and to be docile, uh, were involved with Jesus, and it showed oftentimes. Uh, here's another story, uh, and this is about the crowds. Uh, this is from John 6. I'm going to read 12 through 15. And uh, this is after he's fed the, um, the 5,000, I believe. And it says, And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So listen to the words that came out of their mouths. They said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. 
Well, they got that right. But even so, look how messed up they were with the rest. They were going to overthrow the government and install Jesus as king. Never mind whatever Jesus wanted, they had decided themselves how it was going to be. Let me say that again. Never mind what Jesus wanted, they had decided themselves how it was going to be. Did these people think they were being faithful? Yes, probably. But were they being faithful? No. They weren't turning to the prophet to let him run the show as he thought best. They were making use of the prophet to have the kind of religion they wanted to have at that time, which meant, you know, political freedom from the oppressors and such. And of course, it was quite a complicated story, all of it together, because it wasn't just politics and it wasn't just military. Uh, the whole spiritual thing was wrapped up in it, too, including Satan and his rebel angels and so forth. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, here's another example of people not wanting to let God run things the way that God wanted to run things. Uh, Galatians 1 verses 6 through 9 or so. Paul's writing to the troubled congregation in the, the Galatian uh, churches there, that area. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay, this is very strong language. And what were these people doing? Well, they didn't like the original gospel that had been delivered uh, once for all. And so they were changing it in various ways. They didn't like how Jesus was running things, so they changed the message to suit themselves and were preaching it to others. So there's an example. I believe this happens even today. We just studied John's baptism in episode 33 uh, do you notice how I know the episode numbers today? I actually was diligent to stop and write these things down along the way. Of course, uh, one of the downsides of this is that I actually wrote out most of the words I'm saying to you in this episode, uh, which takes longer than just shooting from the hip. Uh, so sometimes you get it one way, sometimes the other. Anyway, imagine somebody coming to John that, you know, God sent John, right, to do what he did. Imagine somebody coming to him and saying anything like the following. Uh, I'm all for repentance, but I don't think that getting baptized is necessary. Or, uh, hey, John, couldn't you come into town and do this rather than us having to come all the way out there? Or, no thanks, I'll just wait for the Messiah. Or, oh, no thanks, Moses didn't teach baptism. So I'll just stick with Moses. Or, yeah, this sounds great, John, but I think I'd much rather prefer sprinkling to dunking. You do offer sprinkling, don't you? 
I hope this seems incongruent to you because it's the idea of, yes, I'm repenting from my sins and turning to God um, in advance of Jesus's arrival, being prepared for him to listen to what he has to say, but I'm coming on my own terms. I don't want to get baptized. I don't want to have to go out in the wilderness to do it. Um, no, I can just repent when Jesus gets here. No need to do it now. Or, well, we didn't have to get baptized under Moses. Or, well, I really don't like the way you're doing it. Could we do it some way that's more convenient or that's somehow more desirable to me? All of that just screams about people not listening, which was episode 29, by the way. Um, the story of the many who did not listen and of the few who did. And I think that people do a lot of this kind of thing today, whether they realize it or not. Uh, the Jews in Jesus's day, some of them, but not all of them, mind you, had taken great liberties with how God had set things up. Uh, here's an example. Uh, John 2, uh, verse 13 through 18. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of the cords and drove all from the temple courts, uh, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Look how they twisted the situation. They were the ones who had set up the market, even though it was against the law of Moses that they supposedly loved. Yet they challenged his authority to challenge them. And ironically, he was about to show them quite a sign of his authority when he would raise from the dead not long after and bring back many holy people with him from the dead. And I'm referring to Matthew 27, 51 through 53. And that fascinating story. So look how they turn the tables here. They were doing stuff they knew and should know was illegal. And yet they challenged the guy who challenges what they're doing. As if they themselves have authority. You know, in other words, what authority do you have to rebuke us? We rebuke you for not having the authority. Well, what authority did they have to rebuke him or to be doing what they're doing in the first place? So it's quite a double standard, a hypocritical, uh, it's a self-breaking rule. If you're going to say only those with authority to rebuke should rebuke, um, well, if you're going to rebuke somebody for breaking that rule, well, what authority do you have, you see? So it is a self-breaking rule if you try to state it like that. But Jesus told them, stop turning my father's house into a market. So in other words, we set up A uh, for this time, but you've turned it into B. It's supposed to be a temple. You've made it a market. You've twisted it. You've spun it. You've altered it. Well, that makes me wonder just what all that various people need to stop turning things into. In other words, why not just let it be what time it is? And why not just let the rules be whatever they are 
And why not let the past be the past and the future be the future? I almost feel as if I should apologize for bringing this up yet again, but it's just such a fantastic example. Those who take 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, and try to twist it into a command for today, when it had zero to do with supporting the regular operating budget of the local church corporation. Uh, I'll read the passage again. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2 and t- two through 4. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. How many people are unwilling to admit the obvious? That we no longer have apostles living on planet Earth. And that Paul is not going to come get a congregational uh, collection together from your group and take it to Jerusalem where um, the others aren't there either and where there's no famine going on as there was when he wrote this in the first century. How many are going to admit that? Because that's what you do when you use this passage on a Sunday as some sort of a proof text or a justification Uh, for taking up your local collection that is done differently and done for different reasons. What they're doing here, again, if, if you get into the older English versions, you'll see they were to lay by in store, each one by his own side, his money. And he was to do an accounting on Sundays, on the first day of the week, as he had prospered uh, with regard to how much money he had made, what he thought he could give, And he was supposed to keep it all saved up. And then when Paul got there, they're not gathering this money from some central treasury of the church. They're gathering it each individual, bringing what he himself had already laid by in store. So not only was the reason for this different from what churches collect today, weekly, but also the means of gathering up was different. And it's just so not the same thing. And... Anybody who's, you know, fifth grade or sixth grade or whatever can, or above, can totally understand this once they see it explained and laid out uh, with the original language and such. So it's really not all that hard. And yet, uh, this is such a popular error, as are many other things. So how many people are unwilling to admit that we no longer have apostles living on planet Earth? How many want to keep twisting things as if nothing had changed? And how many want to pretend that in maintaining the local church corporations that they are doing the same business that the apostles did in the first century? So let's talk about a big picture example of people not wanting to let God run his creation the way he wants to. Do you remember the title from Harold Kushner, When Bad Things Happen to Good People? It accompanies the general theme that um, many philosophers today would call, quote, the problem of evil, end quote, by which they think that there must be something fundamentally wrong uh, with the world in which evil is going on. They're quick to question or to blame God as if a good God would not let it happen. 
Interestingly, though, when they do evil themselves, they don't always blame themselves for it. You see, when evil things happen in the world, they blame God for it. But when they do evil, they don't blame themselves for it. No, they imagine a world in which they ought to be protected from everything difficult, in which they should be protected from other humans who hurt people by their mistakes and their mindlessness and sometimes by their deliberate actions, just as they do themselves. In other words, they think they should be saved from people like themselves, although they don't necessarily think the converse, that God should save the rest of the world from them. God, please save me from all those bad people and please save everybody else from me and my badness. So they feel some entitlement to have things go their way, and when it doesn't, they blame God, and they think there's some grand emergency, and that is the problem of evil. That's their term, not mine. Well, I don't think it's a problem at all. Are you okay with the fact that God has put you in this world where right now there's nothing spectacular going on? And where there's evil to be endured and overcome. And where not everybody is nice and not everything is emotionally comfortable. And where there's disease and death and strife. And where we're not automatically fed but must work for a living. Are you okay with that? Or do you strain against it somehow? I think that God has very deliberately put us here. I think that going through the evil here is a deliberate part of God's purpose for us. We're to learn from it and grow and mature, and it shows what kind of people we are. It shows whether we're interested in God's way, in God's image, or not. But many hate it here. They hate what time it is. And they wish for something more exciting than just the call to live righteously. They want the bells and whistles. They want the prophecy and the miracles where none are given. They want power and prestige and authority where none is given. So they just make it up. Metaphorically speaking, it's as if they had come to make Jesus king by force. Well, we know he's not really... uh, here to be a political governmental king, but that's okay. We'll make use of him and we'll have our king. We'll just install him by force. I think the Bible is amazingly useful to sinister people who are interested in controlling the world's cognitive and moral misers. Now, a wise person who gets hold of the Bible is going to end up in a totally different place from the fool who gets a hold of it. The wise person becomes rather invulnerable to the manipulations and lies of others. But to the fool, to whatever extent he or she is foolish, the fool is going to be prone to being manipulated. If they are in the company of manipulators, at least. And they're going to take the Bible as it is framed for them without asking nearly enough questions, without vetting what they're told, without examining and analyzing and double-checking, and without reflection on it to ponder whether 
what they're being told really makes sense. The cognitive miser is going to ignore lots and lots of Bible data simply because he or she doesn't want to go to the trouble of considering it all. So they'll be especially prone to drawing up their little abridged versions of Bible topics, such as we discussed in episode 30, which was called uh, Vetting Your Expectations for the End Times and the Beginning Times too. And they'll think their own ways of sizing things up of deciding what time it is, of interpreting what God is doing right now and what he wants right now, they're going to think these are really good conclusions. As long as it seems coherent to them, their bias will tell them that it's probably right. As long as it's easy to understand, their bias will tell them that it is rightly understood. As long as their emotions about it are pleasant ones, their bias will tell them that they must be barking up the right tree. For example, when Granny Betsy dies, many of them will insist that, uh, quote, she has gone to be with Jesus, end quote. But at the same time, they themselves will tell you uh, quite confidently that Jesus has not yet had his second coming and that Satan and death and Hades have not yet been conquered by Jesus and thrown into the lake of fire, So they can't explain why Granny Betsy's soul wouldn't be among the human spirits in Sheol and Hades. Rather, they just choose to believe it's not. And they'll cite one or two verses that make them hope it's not, but in doing that, they have to ignore the remainder of Scripture on the topic. And they don't care. They don't care that their version of things doesn't fit all the data. In fact, they probably would be upset with me calling Bible information data, but it is just information, even if it's uh, true and reasonable and from God. It's still information. But they don't like that view. They think they have some better way of looking at things that's more holy and pious and special. And, uh, And they make use of that pride to continue to dig themselves holes. So they don't care that their version doesn't fit all the data. And they don't care that they can't show you a verse that claims that things have changed. That is, from going to Sheol when you die to going straight to heaven. Uh, They can't show you where that changed along the way or why. Rather, they'll just tell you uh, that it is however they want it to be. And they'll expect you to come along with them in believing it and think you strange if you do not. And they're not going to be scholars on the matters, but merely believers of what they want to believe. And I submit to you that people like that are not very good at letting Jesus run things the way he wants to run things. In episode 34, I told some stories about my long-term struggling with trying to come to grips with what time it is. And I told about our friend who died of cystic fibrosis and how we really wanted her to be healed and how it seemed right to me that God should heal her and how the elder, elder told me flat out that they had tried it before to follow the teachings of the book of James and had discovered that, quote, it doesn't work, end quote. Well, they had stumbled across the truth of the matter. But what now? Again, you know, I criticize them in retrospect. 
Why aren't you talking about this every Sunday that, hey, we discovered this doesn't work? <laughs> and they were so not talking about that every Sunday or ever, any Sunday. But it brings to mind a, an adaptation of a Churchill quote where he said something along the lines of, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened. But who among today's Christians will stumble across some facts like this, such as that the elders in churches can no longer heal people, as James had promised was true in his day, and then will revise his understanding of the Bible accordingly? How many simply revert to what they believed before and will pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened? It's as if they say something like Peter said a couple of thousand years ago, no, Jesus, far be it from you that it should ever be what time it is. It will never be what time it is, but will always be what time I want it to be. Really? Is that how mindless we want to be? Is that how hard-headed and stubborn we want to be? If so, then what makes us think that we're going to be good friends to Jesus? Why can't the truth be good enough for us? But for some, it's not good enough, they think. So they pretend their way into twisting it about. And then when it doesn't work, they have to work really hard not to notice. When in their tongue-speaking church, they have a Chinese visitor, and nobody in their congregation can interpret the Chinese person, although many there claim to have the gift of interpreting tongues, they have to work really hard to resist drawing any conclusions, such as that maybe they do not have the gift of interpreting tongues after all. Or when Sister Betty has a heart attack and is in the cardiac care unit and they all pray that God will heal her and he doesn't, will they all stop to rework their understanding of what time it is based on the new data? No. They'll say, it just wasn't God's will, which is to suggest that God made a deliberate exception to the rule in this case and did not cure Sister Betty. Not because he doesn't do that anymore, but because he had some other priority in mind for her case. And so they will refuse to edit their understanding of these things. They will refuse to change their overall view, counting this present case as an anomaly. In fact, they will not keep count of how many they prayed for, expecting them to be healed, so that they could actually see how many times they are making mental exceptions. I, I figured out a thing in, oh, I don't know, 2003 or so, this little saying, if you haven't done the math, you don't know anything. And I didn't, this is before I'd studied cognitive science, but I was realizing that, hey, uh, we might want to believe stuff, but we're so often wrong if we haven't actually done the study, if we haven't run the numbers, so to speak, or uh, you know, examined the evidence. And so if you haven't done the math, you don't know anything. And that's been very helpful along the way. I've learned better ways to say that since then uh, in various ways. But um, it's really quite true. So they, they don't keep track of, well, we prayed for 100 people in the last you know, X months and 
of them, uh, only this number got well. And they think it's being faithful. Oh, don't look at that. You just keep moving forward, brother. Keep keep the faith, right? That's the way they view it. Uh, but it doesn't work. <laughs> so there's that, right? Uh, they don't realize that let's uh, let me find my place here. I've, I've gotten off. I shouldn't think about what I'm reading here. I should just read it, right? Um, so they'll refuse to edit their understanding of these things. They'll refuse to change their overall view, uh, counting this present case where uh, Sister Betty did not get healed. They count it as an anomaly. And they won't keep count of such things uh, because then they might learn something from the numbers, actually. Uh, and they don't realize that what they're doing could be shown to be erroneous if they did keep track. And this reminded me when I was a kid, my mom took me to work one afternoon for a couple of hours after a doctor appointment where she couldn't afford to take me home first. And so uh, while I was there, of course, I was supposed to be uh, orderly and out of the way and uh, not a distraction to anybody. And uh, the way it turned out, one of the other men in her office, I say other men, one of the men in her office, um, said, well, come over here. And he had this little uh, handheld roulette game with a silver BB that would uh, rattle around in the grooves there with the numbers. And he, he gave me that and a legal pad and a pen or pencil. And he said, uh, pick a number, write the number down, and then spin, and then write down Either yes, you got the number you picked, or no, you didn't. And so basically, it's a statistical study, right? But uh, I was to do this uh, for as long as I wanted to do this. And so I <laughs> went for a time, and I spun a bunch of times and wrote down, uh, you know, what was the number and whether it had happened or not. And, um, and, and I had not learned to be honest at that time. And so I, it seemed to me that there was some uh, value in guessing right. I couldn't just let the truth be the truth. I, I really wanted the truth to be that I got it right a bunch of times. So I wrote all this down. And after some time, I went and presented my findings to the man whose name I don't recall. And I forget exactly what he said. It was something along the lines of, oh, that, that's, these are exceptional returns. <laughs> you know, something like this. Of course, I was young. I don't know if I was five or, or eight. I don't know. But I did not understand that, well, statistically speaking, somebody could look at my numbers and say, well, gee, you know, the chances are supposed to be one in 50 or one in 40, whatever the roulette rules are, that I would get this thing right. And here I am. I've probably gotten it right over half the time, according to my records, and which there's just no way that's going to be true, uh, statistically speaking. So uh, he could look and tell, mm, this seems highly unlikely, but I didn't know that. I didn't realize that my, my moral and cognitive uh, miserliness with this thing would be obvious to somebody else. But it was. 
And so what I didn't realize is that I lied way too much to be even remotely credible. I wasn't looking at it that way. I didn't have enough real world experience to know that somebody else could take an objective view of what I had reported and to see the impossibility of it or the extreme unlikelihood of it. Uh, in fact, uh, and he didn't want to embarrass me, but he could have said, wow, these are exceptionally high uh, numbers. And we really should test this because this is like otherworldly high. We should have you do it a hundred more times where a couple of us can double check and be sure and write down everything and where we could all agree that no mistakes were made or lies were told, you know, had he wanted to, to put a point on it. But see, that's, this is how you could check this thing. Otherwise, it has to go down as well. Remember that miracle day when Jack got like, you know, 50 out of 100 right uh, in roulette, right? That would be like the day of all days. And so at least it has to go down as the anomaly uh, and not the rule. So they could have tested me. Of course, it was obvious to him. And it would later become obvious to me in my life that, oh, yeah, that was dumb. <laughs> So uh, with the healings, in that rare case when somebody does get better after they've been prayed for, uh, we tend to grossly overrate that case and see it as typical without admitting that it's actually a rarity because we don't keep the numbers, right? We don't keep track. We don't write down, hey, we prayed for this many and that many got better. Uh, and we don't realize that any statistician studying what all goes on would realize how ridiculous we're being to maintain the level or the belief that prayers for healing are generally honored by God. But that's the story. You keep telling yourself, oh, yeah, God heals the sick. Yeah, God heals the sick. Yeah, pray for the sick. God heals the sick. Well, if why do you keep saying that if you're not interested in what the actual numbers are? And again, like in my last episode, if you believe that's true, then why don't you get really upset when there's an exception? Like, OMG, what's wrong here? How can this be? How can it be that Billy didn't get better? You should be highly alarmed. Just as if when you drop a bowling ball on your foot, it doesn't fall to the floor. I would find that highly alarming, very surprising. Wow, y'all look at this, what in the world? I would step back. By, by what sorcery is this happening, right? Well, if you really expect it's going to be the routine, why aren't you doing it? Why, why aren't you making a big hoo-ha over this thing when it doesn't happen as it's expected to happen? So it's like sitting on the fence, like, well, okay, we know it doesn't really work, but we still pretend it does. But we, you know, we only get upset about it if it's somebody we really love a lot. And then we might uh, try to blame God. Well, why did you, you know? Let me suffer this way. And that is such a problematic position. It's an unthinking position, and it's very, very common. So we don't realize that how silly we look because we're not looking. Uh, similarly, many will cling to this kind of saying, this, this idea, oh, well, the saying that God appoints the leaders in the churches, that is. Uh, actually, some do it in politics, too. Oh, well, the God put that president in office because that's what he wanted. 
Uh, they get this idea from some Bible passages where it's pretty clear that in some situations in the past, God did in fact appoint certain leaders. But they assume it must still be true today, even though they have zero statements of Scripture that it would always be thus. And so they keep believing it against the data that they refuse to look at. They see one failed leadership example after another and still maintain the myth that God appoints the leaders. I've already told you my early church story about the one congregation in which there was a preacher who murdered his wife and one son with a butcher knife and who would have killed the second son had he not escaped. And then there was the youth choir director who was arrested for having sex with his own daughter and another youth choir director who was arrested for creating child pornography. And then in another church, there was a preacher who got punched in the face for making a homosexual advance to one of the members. And in another, there was the deluded leader who believed himself to be serving, quote, in the role of an apostle, end quote, and who conspired with the high-level administrators to conduct several financial artifices and schemes, all in the name of God. But if you hold fast to God appoints the leaders, then you get back into some pretty ugly corners where you have to then argue that God wanted these evil acts to occur and to harm many people, which they did. And further, you have to wonder why these people aren't called out early by prophets among the members, if you still think there's prophecy going on. And when you see that God certainly could have done that, you have to wonder why he did not. Did, did God not want the right thing to happen? Did he not want the truth to come out? Did he not want people to be protected and to, to walk humbly with God and to love mercy and you know, act justly, you see? And it gets really messy where the alternative view is that God does not appoint the leaders, but that it's merely a matter of human decision where the humans are deluding themselves into thinking that it's God who's behind it all and that we appoint our leaders at our own risk without any manner of heavenly fail-safe, making it impossible for us to make bad choices or making it impossible for the leaders, once in office, to make bad choices either in life or in doctrine. And further, seeing just what depths of evil some leaders can get into, many will still pretend that their leaders while wrong about one thing, couldn't possibly be wrong about this or that other thing. And they'll maintain the idea that while God certainly didn't keep them from making a bad decision um, as to who would be a good leader to a point, God definitely would not let the same exact leader be wrong about any of the doctrines he or she teaches. In other words, you saw this guy wasn't the real deal. You saw he didn't really love the image of God but you're going to trust his teachings uh, implicitly. Do you see how arbitrary all this is? But do they ever blame God for the bad teachings that supposedly, uh, that the supposedly God appointed leader taught? No, not usually. That seems wrong to them to blame God. So they won't, but at the same time, they don't recognize that logically speaking, they're claiming that he's responsible since he appointed that leader, knowing full well in advance what would happen. So how is it that they so often feel so utterly certain when praying or even fasting over whom should be appointed? That Brother Frank is indeed who God wants in that office. 
And why would it seem so unholy to so many of them to take a practical approach and say something like, <clears throat> well, brothers and sisters, we have an important decision to make here today, and there is no guarantee that God is going to keep us from making a mistake. Is it not because they've been conditioned to believe that God is in control of this and God is large and in charge of that? For so many, it becomes cultic, where it is simply not allowed to learn from experience, to think through things, to revise one's conclusions about how things are. They keep each other in line and will not let them question or challenge one of the established beliefs about the group. And so they develop a tough and loyal attitude about maintaining not the truth, but the status quo. Not reality, but the tradition. Not the facts, but the party line. And having built themselves a tradition of this or that flavor, who among us can avoid the strong temptation to hire leaders who will simply reinforce it themselves and who will avoid challenging or altering it? I want to read you a line from Paul to Timothy and think about the truth that is in it about how some people will behave. Second uh, Timothy 4, verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching, uh, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. And I, I have cut it off a little short there because it got into things more germane to Timothy himself and not to the people. But he's supposed to be sober-minded uh, in the face of people who are looking to suit their own passions by picking whatever teacher will do that. Paul warned of people like that uh, who will not endure sound teaching and who will do things to suit their own passions. Okay, so what's your passion concerning what time it is? Are you content to let it be what it is? Or do you so wish that it was either later or earlier? Do you so wish that God were now doing this or that? Are you so swayed by this passion that you were unwilling to let the truth of the matter be the truth? Many take a view that God orchestrates everything, even down to the flat tire you got on the way to the dentist last Tuesday. You know, as I was writing this earlier, I thought, now that's going to really be something if somebody in my audience just happens to have gotten a flat tire on the way to a dentist on last Tuesday. Uh, they're going to have a really hard time, especially if they believe in prophecy, uh, thinking that this is not some sort of prophetic utterance from me. Well, I can assure you it's not. I am no prophet. God has not called me. Uh, but, you know, it, if you already believe in that, you're tempted to see it. You're, you're uh, apt to see it even where it does not exist. And uh, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, they want to believe that God orchestrates everything in the life of the Christian. Well, I wouldn't know how to prove that notion from the Bible, but many hold to something like that, and it suits their passions to do that. They love a story like that. They're the sort who, when somebody's cancer goes into remission, they'll say, that's so God. But when somebody else's cancer kills them, they're strangely silent about that. They do not say, that's so God. 
<laughs> See? Now, why is that? Why don't they revel in glorying God in both cases? If they think he is the cause of the outcome in both cases, then why not revel the same in both? Why do they highlight the one and ignore the other or even obscure the other? Is the truth of the matter not okay with them after all? The very question of what God is doing today is a difficult one, and it tends to expose the qualities, good or bad, of our thinking about it all. It is rather clear, however, that God is not walking in the cool of the day in a garden in the Middle East somewhere. It's also rather clear that we're not in the middle of a flood on an ark. And it's rather clear that we're not wandering through the desert with Moses and the tabernacle, nor in Solomon's temple, nor Herod's. It's pretty clear that there are no living apostles today and that their signs, miracles, and wonders have ceased. It's pretty clear that Jesus is no longer preaching on the earth as he did a couple thousand years ago. All of these things are over. So why not be clear-minded about this? Why not let it be what it is and seek to embrace whatever time this is? If God is running the world today in a less hands-on way than before, is that okay with us? Shall we rebuke him over it? Shall we reject him for it? Shall we declare that he does not exist? Or do we bring him any honor in pretend, pretending it is not so? By pretending that he is behind that flat tire and that he's still healing people, even though so many of the people we pray for don't get healed. Does this somehow help the state of Christianity and its reputation in the world that we should lie about these things? and deliberately obscure the numbers? Indeed, what do we gain by this behavior? Why not be honest and rational and responsible? Indeed, where is there any command against such things? And where is there any law against such things? That's the end of my notes for today. I think that we are in a terrible time uh, regarding the state of the art of uh, Christian thinking, uh, also regarding just the status quo and the, and the average, the state of the average thinking, we say a bunch of junk that we could not begin to prove by honest, rational, and responsible means. But that's okay because it's a culture where we don't care really about proving, although we do often take a stance as if proving is important. You know, we'll lead with what we think is important. Uh, what well, with what we, we will lead an argument with what we think will appear to the audience to be important. Well, you know, uh, Mr. Smith uh, says that blah, blah. Mr. Smith's the well-respected principal, right? So you lead with Mr. Smith because you think it's going to get you approval from your audience. So you don't have to make the argument. You just it's, a, it's an appeal to expertise or appeal to popularity or something like this. And so people say, well, you know, you can reason it out from the scriptures that blah, blah, blah. Uh, and a lot of their audience will say, oh, well, this must be reasonable. Okay. And then they don't do the reasoning. <laughs> they simply take it as it's given to them, you see. And that's 
so very much of what goes on today. It is unreasonable. It is not well vetted. And it's just a bunch of people following their passions. But who's in it for the truth, wherever it may lead? Well, you know, we looked into that and it was very attractive to us, but we just couldn't prove it from the scriptures. So we quit teaching that. Where is that example to be found? I've heard it sometimes, but not nearly enough. I've heard it not as often as it ought to apply. Let me share a thing with you sort of off the cuff here about cognitive science, uh, because this, this applies to what's going on here. And it actually has to do with listening to uh, one's own conscience, sort of, kind of. Let me tell you what it is. Uh, you may or may not have heard uh, from me any mention of the bat and ball question. It's a question of the sort that will be on the upcoming rationality quotient test that tests people's rationality skills, which set of skills, by the way, is different uh, from the skill set that gets measured on an IQ test. So it could be that you have a high IQ but would score uh, lower on a rationality test because it involves different skills to some extent. So in the bat and ball question, it goes like this. Uh, a bat and a ball sell together for a dollar and 10 cents. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball costs. How much is the ball? And um, I'll let you stew on that. For, you might want to pause this thing and answer that. Let me repeat it one more time since you're sort of hearing it live-ish. A bat and a ball sell together for a dollar and ten cents. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball costs. How much does the ball cost? The most popular answer is a uh, ten cents. Uh, when I first read this question in 2011, or maybe 2012, uh, I said ten cents. I showed it to James, who was uh, seven or something, and he said ten cents. I showed it to Kay. She said 10 cents. Uh, and it, as it turns out, 80% of people say 10 cents, but th that's wrong. The answer is 5 cents. And what you're told, of course, is that they sell together for $1.10. Uh, the bat's a dollar more than the ball. Well, if the ball is 10 cents, like 80% of people say, a dollar more than that is $1.10. So you add them together and you get $1.10 plus 10. Well, that's $1.20, so it doesn't work. But if the ball is five cents, uh, like it really is, a dollar more than that is a dollar five. So you add the five to the dollar five and you get a dollar ten. So uh, the right answer I can demonstrate to you is uh, a five cents for the ball. Well, uh, this is fascinating. Uh, and this is, there's a couple of things going on why somebody might get the wrong answer. But one of them, regardless, is that people don't tend to check their math. They think, oh, yeah, duh, this, is, this answer comes to me immediately. It comes strongly to me. It's 10 cents. My hunch is strong. It must be right. I'm going to shoot from the hip and say 10 cents. But they're wrong. Even though they felt assured that, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, this is, this is right. This is right. Okay. Uh, so, uh, interestingly, and there's not much data on this. Uh, I haven't checked the latest, but... Uh, a similar study was done using a question of the same form, but with different particulars. And it went something like this. A magazine and a banana 
sell together for $2.90. The magazine costs $2. How much does the banana cost? And something like, I can't remember exactly, 90%, 95%, something like this, says that the banana is 90 cents. And indeed it is. In this case, uh, while the form of the question is quite similar, the math is much easier to do. It doesn't require algebra. Uh, so more people are able to do this and have a grasp on this. And uh, so, uh, so here's the thing. When you give the same test subjects both questions in a test, uh, and you tell them, please give your answer to each, and then, hey, before you go, would you tell me which answer did you feel more confident about? The bat and ball answer that you gave, or the, which, and we haven't graded your test yet, by the way, so we haven't told you the official answer, but did you feel more confident on the bat and ball question or on the magazine and the banana question? And what do you think the respondent said? I don't have the numbers on how much better, but they felt they reported they were, they were more confident on the magazine and banana question than they were to the bat and ball question. Well, uh, that's good. It's certainly interesting, but it's also good. And it raises this question, which was uh, when I read about this from Keith Stanovich in his books, whichever one it was, the point he made was, okay, well, we need to research this uh, and find out what's all behind it, but it might suggest that people have some way to know or some sort of internal hint that I didn't really do the kind of thinking I should have done here. So I don't feel as confident about my answer here as I feel over there. And that's fascinating. If that's true, it's intriguing. That, uh, and that's why I love that statement. Well, you know, he did what he uh, knew or should have known was a bad thing to do. Uh, that there's a, some certain expectation of people that they ought to know enough as adults to avoid this or that behavior, things like that. And so uh, there is this hint in cognitive science that, at least in some cases, you might make a decision that you know better than to make. And I submit that this happens a lot with Christianity. I think we say a bunch of stuff, do a bunch of stuff. We know better. We know we shouldn't be doing that. We know we haven't proven that from the Bible. Why are we acting as if it's a, just a done deal beyond question? We know that this is not consistent with that, that we said with such conviction. Well, why are we saying this now when it's opposite of that, <laughs> right? But supposedly based on the same principle. So uh, there's a lot of sloppiness that goes on. And in the same way, we can say, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. Jesus is Lord. I love his kingdom. You know, Maranatha, come Lord, you know, and, and I want to honor God. And, all the, and I go to a Bible-based church. And, well, you can say all that stuff. But are we really doing it? And are we really okay? with what time it is and the fact that you're not an apostle or you're not a prophet or you can't heal your brother who broke his leg. Uh, are you really okay with that? Or are you sort of um, working 
to pretend it's sometime different from what it really is. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on. It's common in the culture, religion aside. That's just common cognitive behavior. And I think it definitely takes its toll in the churches too. And so that's why I wanted to run you through this kind of thinking today, these questions, these scenarios about, well, how would you do? Would you approve of the way that God and Jesus run the world, run their kingdom? And the kingdom is a tricky topic. I can tell you on the one hand that flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, period. Well, why? Well, because I have a Bible verse that says that. So uh, to me, if I want to make a rule out of that, which sounds like a rule, I could say you will not find any living humans who still have flesh and blood in the kingdom of heaven, period. Does that make sense? So uh, is that the way it should be read and interpreted? Perhaps not, but it sure is a reasonable thing. I hope you would agree. Uh, however, I can find you some other Bible verses that might tend to suggest that people were in a kingdom or were about to be in a kingdom or something. And well, is this before the second resurrection when they'll all have, uh, you know, heavenly bodies and not the earthly flesh and blood body? Well, suddenly then things will get a little fuzzier and they're harder to define. There's lots of reasons to be confused about this or that. But what do most people do? Do they track it down and solve it? No, they live with the confusion. Well, I don't know about all that. We're just going to say this is what time it is here, <laughs> right? And I submit that is such a bad habit. It's very dishonest and irresponsible, and it is irrational. Why say it's a thing when we don't know it's a thing? Why not take a look at it? So uh, I wrote all this, went through all this today to stretch your brain, to get you to think more about how you think and the quality of your thinking and uh, the integrity of it. And I hope that you find this useful. Uh, again, sure, it's controversial. Well, what isn't? I mean, really. <laughs> so I hope you've enjoyed this and um, hope you find it edifying. Please do let me know. Uh, also, if you take a notion to help support the show, I do have another project in mind uh, because I have so much left over time. But... Uh, Maybe I'll tell you about that project next time, uh, but it would need some support if I were going to do it. So anyway, I will, uh, I'll ponder that, how to present that best, and then we'll go from there. Thanks for joining in.